You know, there's this joke that is uh, said about vegans. So how do you know someone's a vegan? Don't worry. Give them enough time and they'll tell you. So <laughs> I've got to say that's totally true, at least for me. Uh, I speak pretty easily about being a vegan, and I don't do it from some sense of self-importance. It's just that usually I have to tell people because if I'm working with clients or if I'm out with people, inevitably we're going to eat, and I want to be able to eat. So one of the things that I've really appreciated about modern times is that vegan options are more abundant than ever. But with that comes this kind of odd moral dilemma. As you know, the business world is recognizing like, hey, there's money to be made here, money from companies that are not vegan and not owned by vegans are starting to flood in. So it kind of puts you in a little bit of a sticky situation here of like, how do I really feel about this? Today, we're going to talk about that connection between the ethical concerns of someone who you know, grows up in this vegan world and how do we feel about investing or allowing our money to be going to companies that don't necessarily care about that, but they're part of providing vegan options. We've got a great guest for that. We've got uh, Rich Labati from Instead and Rocco Sweet Shop. So this is a, a guy that I have immense respect for, and I know that this is going to be a fantastic episode full of lots of really good insights. So tuck in and get ready for another episode of One Step Beyond. All right, everyone, welcome back. Today, we have someone on the show that I'm really excited about having, and I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Um, so, Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So, you and I have known each other for a while, and we've spent a little bit of time together, but I have known about your legacy as uh, both a musician and also someone who's an entrepreneur and, and really been quite active in the animal rights space for a long time. So for the benefit of our audience, tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So um, my name is Rich Labati, and um, I have a, a vegan bakery out here in Arizona currently. But backing up, um, you know, uh, as a as a preteen, I, I was uh, got into the, the punk hardcore scene and um, where I would buy my records the guys that were kind of turning me on to what was happening uh one of the guys was uh happened to be a vegetarian at the time and he uh was pretty hardcore about it and he had asked me one day he said you know hey uh do you eat meat and I, you know i'm purchasing records and he's like do you eat meat and i was like uh yeah why and he's all you shouldn't and he started explaining to me why and it really kind of i became really interested quick on on what he was saying and so he told me to watch some video and I watched the video. I forget what it was on how they make hot dogs. And, uh, that was it for me. As soon as I saw that, I realized it all came together, you know, like I don't want to, I don't want to support this. I don't want to eat this stuff. I don't want to be involved with any of this stuff. I care too much about animals. And, um, from that day on, and I was, you know, 13 years old and I told my mom, you know, that's it. And, um, she was very, uh, accepting towards it. And, you know, her, Later on in life, she became vegan as well. But um, 
she was really open to it. You know, she was pretty much do whatever you want. And and it, at the time, my parents were going through a divorce, so I think she was really like, whatever you want. I'm just trying to like save the family, you know. But I I, I got into it then and just stopped stopped eating. And I didn't know much about it at the time. I just thought, well, if I don't eat meat, which I didn't have, the, meat was not in my diet. Uh, large quantities of it. You know, we didn't. I come from kind of a lower middle class family, so we didn't have a lot of money. And um, thinking back, even when I was seven, eight years old, like people ask me, like, don't you miss, you know, turkey for Thanksgiving? I thought, I've only eaten turkey one time my whole entire life. And it was disgusting. And, and, and that was when I was seven or eight years old, and I realized, I don't like this, you know? So here comes this guy saying, you shouldn't do it. And uh, I thought, perfect. I don't like half the stuff anyways, you know? And now I see what it's really all about, and uh, that's it. So... <laughs> Anyways, um, sorry if I'm getting off path, but so actually, I'm. Uh, would you mind if I ask you a couple questions about that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and and we'll get to the rest of the story because you're already sharing some stuff with me that I I didn't know. So, what year was this? You're 13 years old. What year did you become vegetarian? Yeah, so I think 83 is. Um, I think officially when I when I realized that it had a like I'm vegetarian, like this is it, and I'm taking a stance again. I would I would say 86 was when I would really be like, I'm vegetarian, I certainly don't eat it. Because I probably went home, watched that video, thought, oh my God, this is disgusting. And maybe four months later, like a hamburger came across the table or a piece of pepperoni pizza or whatever, and I ate it. But when I made a stance, so I could, when I could definitely say, look, I don't, I don't eat this anymore, I would say 1986. So I was 15 years old, going on 16, when I really committed to that um, definition, you know. And how old are you now? I just turned 50 a couple months ago. Heck yeah, man. That's incredible. That's a huge, huge um, yeah. accomplishment. And it might not feel like an accomplishment to, to me. That's really inspiring. Now, I'm real interested, though. When you said like a video, so this is like, you know, 1986. There's not like YouTube. So when no. I hand you a video across the counter. It was, uh, I believe, I I want to say it was like Faces of Death or something like that. There was like, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? It was that or it was, there wasn't a lot of information out there at all, especially, you know, video and that topic. I mean, the word vegetarian was extremely radical back then. Yeah. And and the, the word vegan, I didn't hear about until a few years later. But, um, but I mean, that was, wow, that was extremely radical. I mean, and I was already now part of this radical movement of, of underground music and punk rock was, was radical as well. So now I'm, I'm taking that and I'm adding this vegetarian lifestyle into it. It was just, you know, pretty, pretty crazy. Well, man, and that's, you know, when you say there wasn't a lot of information, and the information that there was, was often misinformation. Like you remember like the, what was it like the, uh, the food pyramid or oh, whatever thing. No, was, I was, I was like, thinking about, I was thinking about that this morning. It wasn't even the pyramid. It was the four food groups. I mean, when I went to it? school, four, four, it was the four food groups. You had meat, dairy, breads and cereals and fruits and vegetables. And you had to have a serving of each at every meal or whatever. And that's what we were taught by the, you know, the, the, the government's educating the public of what they need. And we don't know any better. Everyone's just following the rules, right? Well, that was a bunch of bullshit. You know, you realize later on. <laughs> but how wild is that? So you're just at some record store. Some dude. Was this Frank? No, it was uh, Eric Wood. Um, he, plays, oh. he played in Pillsbury Hardcore, PHC, went on to do uh, Man is the Bastard, Bastard Noise, all that stuff. But um, 
he is a, a, a huge part of my life. He was he was exposing me to all this music at the time, all these records. He, I'd come in there and he'd say, buy the minor threat, don't buy this GBH record or whatever. And so he was steering me there. And then he it turned me on to this vegetarianism and, and that whole animal rights lifestyle. And then um as I and then I I wasn't even playing bass at the time. But a couple of years later when I started playing bass, he was a bass player and he actually sold me one of my first bases I still have today, that was the Instead bass I bought from him. Wow. All right. So let's go from there. So for, for the, the audience that doesn't know about your background, so you get into vegetarianism around 1986 is when you're like, I'm a vegetarian. But that's just a, a part of the story because there's like lots of cool chapters that come from there. So what happened next? Um, I learned how to play an instrument. And by the time I was graduating high school, I joined a band uh, Instead. And, and it was an established band. And uh, Within a couple months, uh, the first record came out, and we were on tour. And so that was, uh, you know, I went from, I didn't go to, you know, graduate high school, going to college like everyone else did. I, I, I jumped in a van. And, and I did, I signed up for college, but I ended up having to drop out so many times. I was wasting my money on, on the tuition and books, and, and I would, could never complete it because we were touring so much. So I eventually just said, never mind, I'm just going to do music for now. All right. So let's, t- let's talk about Instead for a sec. Okay. So obviously for anyone from the punk scene who, who is listening, you know all about it. For anyone who's you know, from the business world or just a, you know, someone who's listening to this out of interest, I'm going to speak from a fan perspective, Rich. So like this is me talking. You, know, you don't have to agree with anything. Uh, instead, hands down, one of the most important punk slash hardcore bands of all time and important in a lot of ways. So if I'm thinking about a band being about what they're actually about instead is that band. And I had the really good fortune of being able to spend a little bit of time with them when they did a few reunion shows and could just to see the the people in the band were still about it. And whether or not it's strategy or not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like vegetarianism, like the ethics, the ideas Uh, instead put out two unbelievable LPs. My favorite though, is the EP, which I believe is the first record that you played on, the Will Make the Difference EP. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. I put that as a top five hardcore EP for me. Uh, Definitely that record, and specifically the song about vegetarianism, Feel Their Pain, is something that people still talk about. Like, oh, that was the difference maker for me. That was, for us, the person across the counter saying like, oh no, you should go vegetarian, do you eat meat? Like, that was that thing. So... I was a little bit of a latecomer to instead because, you know, if you fall within this world, you know, there was almost like, are you into East Coast hardcore or are you West Coast hardcore? And even though I, I live on the West Coast, I grew up in Calgary, which is kind of sort of in the middle-ish, well, I guess closer to the West Coast of Canada. But for whatever reason, I was like a youth of today, like that's my band. And the intensity, the, the power, and I still love youth of today. Instead, I always like liked and respected Interestingly enough, I came to Instead as I got older and the further I got into just being an adult and like having real world problems and real situations, there was something about like the honesty and the authenticity and just like the optimism of Instead that wasn't corny. It was just practical and the practicality of the ideas is what really struck me. So I'll say hands down, if you have not heard Instead, please check them out. Uh, I'd say that like they are like easily one of the most important bands in my life. Um, so, and this song specifically feel their pain is, I believe one of the best written vegetarian songs. So you played it instead and instead 
unlike a lot of bands at that time, really toured, like toured, toured. Yeah, it's funny. I, I didn't realize that until looking back again, of course, that, that we, we did tour a lot and a lot of bands didn't. So um, we were lucky. We, we, we did it. And uh, I think that's what kind of got us popular, obviously, just by traveling and meeting people. And I, a lot of the people I met in, in that tour in 1988, so 32 years ago, I'm still friends with today and they still mean a lot to me. It's, it's interesting, you know? Well, so it's, is it true that instead would just like, you'd go out to the East coast and you would just stay at Roger from agnostic front's house and you would just use it as a home base for like months as you just went all over the place. That, that tour in particular, that's what happened. Um, it was the first tour we did and we didn't know what we were doing at all. A guy from the East coast was booking it. Um, he, he disappeared in the middle of booking it. And then Johnny Stiff, who's from New York, picked up the ball and said, hey, I'll help you guys out. And I had met Roger from Agnostic Front a couple of years prior. He, they had played out in California. And I just uh, mistakenly went to the show early because everything I was reading in zines about Agnostic Front, they were playing these matinees at CBGBs. So I just, you know, I'm four, I was 14 years old. And I this and they're playing on a Sunday in in near my house, and I thought, well, I better go there. It's an early show. Not realizing it's not a matinee like CBGB, <laughs> so I'm there, and I get dropped off by my mom. So I'm by myself, and this van pulls up, and you know they're on tour, so they get to the show three hours before the show starts, and uh, we met. That's how we met. They're stamping stickers, and we got to know each other, and so I stayed in touch with Roger, and then when I joined instead, and now we're touring. I reached out to him and, and he said, sure, you guys could stay with me. He probably didn't realize that we were going to end up staying there for weeks <laughs> because our tour <laughs> fell apart, but he offered his house, which was awesome. And uh, so we show up to the East Coast and we stay with him. And he was going through some legal issues at the time, but we were having such a great time together. He was like skipping out on work and he had an attorney meeting and, and all this stuff. He ended up going to prison for it later, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but we had a great time. And so, yeah, we did stay with him. Oh man. And like, there's so much really cool legacy and legend around this. I could unpack with you for hours. That's not why we're here today, but I do want to fold that in. Uh, one of the things that always stood out to me around instead is that you were the gap band between kind of like the, you know, 86 to 89 kind of hardcore into the 2000s hardcore. So like, it's hilarious when, not hilarious, but it's always interesting when like, the dudes in earth crisis or like that scene talk about instead it's like oh when instead came through right it's like they're not talking about um like they're not talking about youth of today they're talking about instead and it's like earth crisis which is like i mean earth crisis went on to do so many cool and important things instead to me always seemed to play this like role of like at first an easily dismissible band almost like oh they're kind of like boy scouts and then you get it and when you get it you're like oh no 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 like instead, that's the band. And you find these people from like all sorts of different kinds of music from like super extreme, like death metal, all the way to like, you know, just like your, your common hardcore kid. They're like, oh no, that's the band. So to me, instead was always this kind of like gap band that like brought that 86 to 89 kind of hardcore into the 2000s. But then one day you just like, now we're done. You announce it at a show and that's the end of instead. Yeah. So what happened there? Well, um, what happened at that time, we didn't have intentions. It wasn't a planned thing at all. But I think what had happened was Kev basically found a girl and he, he fell in love with her. And, um, you know, instead being the way we were, it was really about 100% all the time. We The guys in the band were 100% into hardcore. You catch us at the shows if we weren't playing them. 
you'd catch us at the record stores buying the records, you know, the whole thing. So when it got to that level, you know, a few years later, we had a, we had some records out, we'd done some touring, we'd built up the name. Kev, uh, on that last record on What We Believe, he, you know, he, he was struggling to write a lot of the lyrics. And uh, because his time now was devoted towards dating this, this woman that is now his wife. And um, it just, it was, I, I'll be honest, it was a little bit challenging making that record. Um, you know, we had this opportunity, we're on Epitaph Records, which was unusual, and uh, we were very excited for it, and uh, we, were, we were all in. And he was, he wasn't 100% now. He was, and it wasn't in a bad thing where we were mad at him or anything like that. We just thought, you know what, this might be a good time to, you know, this record's out and we were supposed to go to Europe and there was a war that was happening. So we ended up staying at home and doing another tour. And it was just kind of starting to wind down. It felt like that internally. So we just, we were all friends and we said, look, let's just, let's just call it a day here. This is probably a good time to check out. The scene was changing musically also, the hardcore punk scene that we were involved with, uh, or especially a lot of those youth crew sort of bands were gone, or they were kind of turning towards that whole metal sound. And and we didn't know how to do that. That wasn't about, that's where we're not going to do that, right? So we're just like, we might be a fish out of water here shortly, you know? So let's, uh, it might be a good time just to kind of check out. We're, we're happy where we're at, what we, what we left behind, and we said what we wanted to, and we just decided to kind of, slide out and we could have you know did the big big promotion of it and make a big thing we didn't want to that wasn't us either we just wanted to like silently do our thing just like we would you know yeah i i like totally powerful i i felt like the footage from that where kev's like hey this is our last show and you can hear the crowd be like oh yeah like, that's cool man I, I i for me it was a perfect story and and that also up to includes the reunions which maybe we'll talk about later but let's talk about the closing of that chapter you said instead is a hundred percent band finishes then what what happened to you um well you know for me i realized that music's in my blood even historically in my my heritage going back my grandfather was a maestro of music in sicily and and I've got cousins that can sing and all this fun, fantastic. So once I got into the band and realized how much I love it and that I have a skill that I can actually write songs and put these things together and instead comes to an end, well, I'm not done, you know, and, and neither was it, you know, of course, Steve Bear and I were, were, we're still at the hundred percent level. Kev's the one that's kind of waning. So he went off, he, he went and moved to Colorado and got married. Well, the three of us, the next band we did was called Lidsville. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it was more, it wasn't a hardcore band anymore. And we picked up a singer who was not into the punk scene at all, but he knew how to write songs really well and he wanted to try his hand at singing. So we did Lidsville, which is more of a college rock sort of Pixies X type of thing. And we did that for five years. And it was new for me too, because I was now learning how to write a different style of music. It wasn't just like as hard and fast as you can play and yell about things that you don't like or that you do like, whatever, now we're trying to write songs that are like commercially appealing or whatnot. And so it was a different, different element. But we did that mm-hmm. for five years and, uh, and then that ended. And... Well, what were you doing as a career though? So instead was like, like you said, I couldn't even go to college because we were like always on tour, but Lidsville didn't tour like that. No, we did. So instead wraps up, yep. you start Lidsville as kind of like, yeah, let's, let's do this and see where this goes. But what did you do? What I did at that time was odd jobs and whatever made sense. Now, see, I didn't have the college education at that by that time. And I was just, um, 
just doing whatever because i thought that with lidsville well this has a chance more you know a punk band is not meant to be successful and and you know make a living at it whereas this kind of music we might have a shot and um so i was kind of managing the band as well i was doing all the you know booking the rehearsals and trying to get shows and all that stuff and uh in between that i was working at uh nightclubs in the evening um that's funny enough the guys from doggy style had formed this uh they were kind of in the la scene of nightclubs and they and i'd known them and and uh they gave me a job working at nightclubs um a few nights a week so i was doing that and then just doing the band in the daytime and that was kind of what I, kind of what I did for like five years there, and I'd have these little odd jobs, you know, in between as well. If the if the clubs were not doing good or, or in transition or whatnot, so there was nothing focused at all. Um, at the tail end of of Lidsville, I I decided I wanted to do a, a clothing line with my brother, which ended up not working out great. It was a learning experience, but I've kind of always had that drive to like I have an idea to do something. And I really might not know how to do it, but I could at least turn the idea into reality, whether it's successful or not, right? So I, had, I just definitely had the drive to be able to put it together and do it. So I, I did do that. Um, that. That lasted about a year, and I realized that I shouldn't be doing business with my brother. And um, that was that. So um, that brings us to like 96, 97. So what ended up happening when, when Lidsville stopped is um, I ended up getting a job over at Golden Voice, which was uh, concert promoters in L.A., and I'd gotten to know them through Instead, and the owner uh, somehow really liked me, and, and I ended up becoming his first official assistant, and he's the guy that uh, created Coachella, the music festival, and he was doing that when I was his assistant. So um, I did that. I thought, well, I'm still connected to music, even though I'm not doing music. I'm just kind of in it still. And then... I did that for a little bit. And then uh, the following year, I, I took my mom back to Sicily for her 50th birthday. That's where she was born. And I knew that when I was coming back home, I wouldn't have a job because things were changing and whatnot. So I really had to figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, when I got back home, I ended up doing merchant service, merchant service business. And it was not, it was not fulfilling at all. It was just, I could make money and it had residual income. And, I did that for a while and I built up this portfolio where I had residual income and, but I wasn't happy at all. I was still thinking about music. I was still always trying to venture out and do my own thing. I ended up doing my own office version of the, of the merchant services. I was working for a guy before and I thought, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I did that. And then, uh, from there, I, again, by the way, I had a band. I ended up doing this band crash cart for five years, uh, which is another kind of indie rock underground sort of, Jawbreaker slash Sunny Day real estate type of era music. And let's see. After that, the, the, the merch.com thing kind of fell on my lap. That was, uh, they were one of my clients and they were friends of mine who started the company and I'd set up their merchant account. So I'd, I was connected to them through, through business that way. And, um, one of the guy that was running the company at the time was, was leaving the company. And uh, they weren't doing very well, but they were a big client of mine from a merchant services standpoint. So I wanted to try to help them save their company. So I thought, well, how can I help keep you guys intact? And he basically turned the company over to me and said, you can run it. I'm out of here. And so I, I ran that for seven years. 
Um, yeah, that's how they got the uniform choice merch. Yeah, no, actually, th- that was already there. Um, okay. Yeah, that was already there. But they, they but yes, it was. We had the uniform choice merch. Um, anyways, I did that for you know, and, and that was still. I still felt connected because it was music merch, and it was yeah. I'd done merch with instead, and I was familiar with that world, and I just kind of fumbled along. But I was always trying to do music on the side and my own thing on the side, and just kind of each each thing i did i was i'd learn one or two things from and take it to the next job you know and um so that uh then here comes the financial the housing crisis in 2008 and all that stuff right and um the company in general for merch.com was there was a bunch of uh partners shareholders and they weren't getting along at all and and no one was getting out of each other's way and people were trying to buy each other out and it was just falling apart the music industry was changing all kinds of stuff was happening here comes the crisis and it just smashes everything and uh at the time i i uh i had a house that i had a short sale i lost the business i was married i got divorced so everything kind of fell apart and i had a cousin that lived in arizona and also roger from agnostic front had moved to arizona a couple years prior and they both had said come out here you've been through a lot and you can recover the it's it's pretty affordable out here and just kind of figure out what you want to do it's not too far away from california but get away from that mess right now and that's what i did and uh, i never never went back so good for you man yeah all right so we got instead which was like this moment of real intense focus where it's like all of that stuff then afterwards you're just trying different things figuring it out and you know you've got these moments of focus and, and purpose and everything but along the way, it didn't really seem career-wise like you ever really found your thing, like the thing that you were going to do. At the same time, you're a vegetarian. When did vegetarian turn into veganism? Yeah, it was kind of uh, 89. I decided, okay, the whole vegan right thing came, came through, and I was mm-hmm. like, okay, this is... Then I started to evolve and learn, like, okay, when I first became vegetarian, I thought that was good enough, right? I thought, well, I don't eat any animal products. And I don't, I don't kill these animals. Right. But, but you don't, you don't have to kill the animal to get cheese and, and milk and all that stuff. Right. So that was okay. Well, it wasn't okay. As you learn and you start to really do your research, you realize that those industries or the dairy industry is even worse than the meat industry, the way they abuse the animals and stuff. And so, um, it was a slow evolution, I think, you know, like, so I thought, okay, well I'm vegan. And then you're addicted to the to cheese and dairy and stuff like that too so you have these cravings so every once in a while you kind of slip and uh but by the 90s i was pretty much like done with everything yeah so you're out to arizona mm-hmm. you've kind of stepped out of this tougher chapter of your life yeah you land in arizona how do we get to rocco's suite sure so when i got here i realized um there's only a few places to eat right so i'm living in scottsdale and i was like wow there's a few only a few restaurants here that are geared towards a a vegan or vegetarian uh, menu and um, i ended up becoming involved with one of those restaurants down the road but when i first got here i was i was working on a farm on an indian reservation Mm -hmm. and uh uh, luckily i had my friend who was living out here his wife was also working on this farm and they said that they this this indian tribe is uh they have this bean that's native to their tribe and they want to get it off the reservation. They kind of want to market it as a superfood. 
and they'd heard that I'd ran an online store and I had experience with that. So they brought me in to develop this brand, um, turn this, this as a temporary bean. They wanted to market it and get it into Whole Foods and market it as a superfood. So they brought me in. I'm working on the farm. We're developing the company. We're getting the packaging ready and all this good stuff. And, and, um, I'm eating at this restaurant that's somewhat close. They become a customer of ours where I'm selling them the beans and this and that. And, uh, I get to know the staff really well and they, they, they love me coming in and all that. And I realized they got a line out the door every day. You know, they need to expand and let me help them expand. So I'm talking to the owners. It's a mother and daughter about, about opening another location and. They're like, oh, we don't know, this and that, and, and this time goes by, and all of a sudden now a couple of years have gone by, and um, I realize the farmer that I'm or the farm that I'm working for, the guy, his ethics are, he's got, he's unethical. He he basically married a, a, a Native American lady to to move on to that reservation so he can be on, under sovereign laws that doesn't have to apply to the normal government rules. And he can basically, it's like a master and slave. He's a white guy from Connecticut. Marries a Native American. Now he's got all these Indians working for him. They're working 15, 16 hours a day for five, six bucks an hour. You know what I mean? He's grinding them into the ground. I don't like his, the way he does his business, you know? Yeah. And I thought, well, you know what? At first I thought, well, great. It's a farm and it's, it's nothing to do with animal agriculture. So I'm okay with that. He's growing corn. He's growing beans. Cool. And then I realized he's growing hay. And that hay is going to the dairy industry and it's providing them, you know, with that. So I, I just started to not feel good about working for him, his ethics, the way he does business, what he, how he treats people. And along comes a phone call from Eddie Vedder and his uncle is sick and his uncle lives here in, in Arizona and he doesn't really have a family structure or a good, you know, system in place. And he's, He's kind of estranged from his wife and he's got these kids that he has this obligation to and he's going to need help. Well, it just so happens that I have a, a little bit of experience. Um, he has cancer and my mom had died from cancer and my dad had died from cancer. So I had a little bit of experience uh, dealing with it at the time. So um, again, a musical connection through a friend, mutual friend brought us together and he asked, he said, look, can you help? And he goes, the thing is, it starts tomorrow. You can't even really think about it, like if you want this gig. And so I was, it was a perfect time. He was kind of saved me, pulled me out of the farm. I was looking to like get out of there. And so it was like, great. I know that this is not going to last, you know, forever. Obviously, I know it's a time thing, but I, I need a reason to get out of the farm. And this was it. That was the call. So I jumped in. I started helping his uncle and was basically his caregiver, assistant sort of guy that helped him take care, get his kids to the dentist appointments and hang out with him and there was a musical connection there too which is great and then it also led into like he got me into baseball which i had kind of abandoned sports when i got into punk rock i i gave up sports but now he's pulling me back in and that's a different story but anyways um that lasted about nine months and during that time period when i was taking care of him i was taking him down to this restaurant getting him you know good vegetarian food and smoothies and this and that and um it just so happened that that, that family came to me and said look you know what you said a while back? We want to do that. We want to, we want to work with you. We want to form a partnership. I was like, great. Well, John, the guy I was taking care of passed away right around that same time. And mm -hmm. so I'm in a meeting with this family and we're restructuring this partnership about this restaurant. 
And so um, I bring in a couple friends from California that are investors that are into the whole vegan lifestyle and all that stuff too. And we form this, we reform this partnership with this family. And now I'm a restaurant owner. And that restaurant was only open um, for breakfast and lunch. And I thought, well, great, let's open it up for dinner. That'll expand, you know, that'll bring in more uh, revenue. And I can learn what you guys, how you guys operate. And you can learn how I operate. We can try to figure things out together. Because what I learned was they have a line out the door every day. And they're, they're bringing in over a million dollars a year. But they're, they're in the red. And something's wrong. Yeah. So if you can capture that amount of people through your door, you should be able to at least break even. So something's wrong here that I could help with. And so that's, that was the intentions in the beginning. And then after that, the plan was to expand. We wanted a few different locations. And I wanted to, I just moved down to Gilbert. And I thought, well, great. I can we'll start looking for location number two near my house because there's nothing here. And so that was the plan. And through that process, I also realized that, you know, after I was in there maybe nine, 10 months, and I realized this family, is not on the up and up either. Their ethics are out of line. Like they're saying they're a vegan, they're saying they're a vegan restaurant, but they're not. They offer dairy. And I, when I discovered that, I go, what, what's going on here? I go, we came in as this is a vegan restaurant and, and we know that everything moving forward is going to be 100% vegan or, or we can't do it. And they said, yeah, but we can't lose our clientele here. Um, we have to offer this dairy and this eggs or else we'll lose everything. I thought, well, we're going to prove to you on location two. That that's not true, and then we're going to come back to location one, and it's going to be 100% vegan. And uh, but I didn't. The the way they spun it to the public was we're a vegan restaurant with vegetarian options. <laughs> it didn't make sense to me. Oh man. Uh, yeah, like that. And and the and my friends who came in, one of my friends, Tony, who was super activist at the time, and he's like, I don't even want to put my name on this because like it. I thought it was 100% vegan, and all of a sudden, like we're learning that the like the owners weren't vegan, and it was like, oh, it didn't sit well with us. So, long story short, we kind of we set we split ways after about a year, mm -hmm. and um, when we did that, we uh, I was left without a job because I was that was my job. Now I'm I'm running a restaurant. We're going to open location number two and three and everything else. Well, now I don't have a job, and I have a seven month old named Rocco, and what am I going to do? You know, and so I didn't really have, uh, I didn't have anyone not, you know, kicking down my door to offer me a job because I don't have like this giant college degree and whatnot. And uh, all I have is this experience. But I thought, well, I'm just going to invest in myself and I'm going to start uh, this bakery because number, as even way back when I was a kid, I, was, I, I had a sweet tooth. I love sweets. I, ice cream truck was my favorite, you know, the whole thing. And so, and also being inside the restaurant, I realized that that was what was drawing people down. People were driving an hour just to get a slice of cake because yeah. out here in Arizona, the one thing, it was an underserved market. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there was, there, you couldn't find hardly anything. So I thought, well, there's a huge demand for it. The profits margins are, are the better on it. And I don't want to have 25 employees working. I don't want to do a restaurant again, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I decided to do a bakery. And my cousin, who lived out here, well, she was doing cookies at the time, not vegan or anything like that. But she had had this experience. And, she, and as soon as I told her, like, look, I'm not doing the restaurant anymore, but I want to start a bakery. And she's like, oh, I'm so happy that you said that. Let me teach you everything I know. And so, um, so we, we, she helped me out a lot in the beginning. And uh, I came up with the name, developed a plan, and just, you know, turned it into reality again. All right. So, Rocco Sweet. 
Yes. Successful, going well? Yeah, it's going well. It's um, you know, it's it's a slow rolling thing, you know. It's uh I don't have investors, I haven't propped it up with anything, I don't have uh employees. It's it's hundred percent me. Um, but I've been doing it for five years and it has organically grown and it's at the point where I do need to hire. Um and so yeah, that's that's what's happening here with me. All right, man. So you have been there. You have been in this space for a long time. You have seen the world change and become more accepting of vegetarianism, of veganism. So let's talk about one of the things that I think is the most important. Again, why I specifically wanted you for this episode. Um, if I'm just going to say it frankly, and we were talking about this before we started the recording, I've always just found you to just be like a very principled person. And also a no bullshit principled person. Like you're not a, you're not a jerk. You're a very, very nice guy, but you're also like very clearly have line, a line you won't cross and you're going to follow what you think is right. So we're in a world now where veganism, it's like trendy. And, you know, there's all of these different vegan options all over the place. And in fact, we're so far down the line that KFC of all places is offering vegan food. It's an interesting thing because in a lot of ways it could seem almost like what we as vegans would have been hoping for, but it's not that simple. There can be this kind of ethical complication. That's where I want to start pushing on this. Sure. So do you think it's possible to separate capitalism from ethics in business? I think it is possible. I mean, look, there, there are companies that are vegan, 100% vegan, and they're ethical and they are successful. Mm -hmm. Now, the vegan word is 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 changed. It's evolved, right? And there's a lot of different variations of what vegan is. Or whatever you could be an ethical vegan, or you could be this type. It's kind of like the punk scene, right? You could be you're in hardcore. You might be a skate punk or a peace punk or whatever. But there's variations. The vegan thing, um, it's a it's a known thing now. So um, I personally, I, I don't the KFC thing. I'm happy that it exists, but I I don't support it. I don't support, I don't need to go. I mean, I, there was a, there was a time in my life, you know, as a teenager, I wouldn't even go use the bathroom there because I was so anti that place. You know what I mean? Because what they stood for. And let's be, let's be straight about it. They don't care about the vegan world or that they're going to reduce the, the, the amount of chickens they're killing. They don't care about that. They, they're losing market space. So they just, they need to fill it with something. So this is, it, it, the vegan thing is happening right now. So they're doing it. And that's, that's what it's about for them. So. It's a, that's a tough one. I, I don't support, I don't support things like that, but, I, but there are people, I think it's, I think it's good for people that normally go in there that might try that. And that might be their gateway into, you got to start somewhere. Right. Um, so I, I do think it's a good thing, but I don't think it's, uh, I don't know. I, I, I sorry. I want to stop right there. Cause I gotta, I gotta gather my thoughts. Cause I just recently was, I mean, I'm learning still every day, you know, and I know at first you see the headlines, you know, dairy's taking a blow, you know, they lost two billion last year and you're, you get just excited, right? And then you realize, you know what? Yeah, they, they took, financially they took a blow, but they're still producing the same amount of milk and they're just dumping it because they're getting paid for it and, and we're paying for it, the taxpayers. So it pisses me off, you know? That you think that we're winning, but it's it's a lot more than that, right? So I, I want I want to hit on that word though, winning. Yeah. So is veganism is like it's popular now, and man, I'm psyched. Like I am 
I'm psyched that I can walk down the street and get vegan options anywhere. Sure. I'm psyched that when I go on a work trip, I can eat in all sorts of places. I'm psyched that like if I if I'm working with a client and they're ordering in lunch, it's not some bizarre, they don't view it as some like bizarro cult that I'm a part of. I'm psyched. Like that's cool. I'm glad there's options. But there's always this part of me where I'm like, damn, is this like punk becoming mainstream? Is it like, yeah, it's cool that I can hear punk anywhere, but like kind of sucks. And like, it kind of makes me feel a little compromised about things. This is different. But when we talk about winning, is veganism about ethics? Is it inherently about ethics or is it just some other way to eat? No, it's, a, it's about ethics. There's, I think there's a separation. If you're just, there's a plant-based diet, that's just eating a vegan diet. Right, you're eating a, a plant-based diet. You're, you're not you're not consuming any animals. That's plant-based. Vegan is this outlook. More than it's more than just diet. It's you, you're not you know using bars of soap that have been tested on animals. You're not wearing leather. You're not. It's it's the whole thing. So it is about ethics. I, I you know that's that's to me that is the difference. All right. Well, so when we talk about winning, what is what does winning look like? For me, winning is get rid of the meat and dairy industry, get rid of the vivisection labs, you know, get rid of the fur farms and, and the, the leather factories. That's winning, you know. Now, I don't think consumerism is going to be the answer. I, you know, in the beginning, I thought that, like, oh, the more that we can, the more vegan options is just showing that the popular, that the, the people want this and they're reacting to it by offering vegan stuff. They have to because they're losing money if they don't. And that's a great, it's a win, right? Mm. Is it? I don't know. Because our animals are still suffering. Have they, have they reduced the, the production of animals? I don't, I, I'm learning now that they're not. They're stockpiling meat and cheese and all this garbage. They're still producing the same amount because they're getting these government bailouts and subsidies. And until we get rid of that, inside, you know, it, it's like I hate politics and I try to stay away from it all. But at some point, you you kind of got to get in there, and that's where we can probably be more successful, or we can make more of an impact. Consumerism will make an impact, yeah, for sure, supply and demand, whatever. But I I do there's another piece there. They're still being propped up and bailed out, and they're still producing the same amount of of milk and, and meat, you know. Mm-hmm. And I have a problem with that, so I don't know how to how to dismantle that. But that's that's. That's winning to me, getting rid, getting rid. Um, so when you speak, and again, like we, we only know each other a bit, but I feel comfortable enough to say with you, like you don't strike me as as like uh, an inherently like angry person. Like you're not a guy that flies off the handle. Right. But when I hear you talking about this, there is there seems to be like an underlying anger about this system here. Yes, there is, and you know I try to remain positive, and I guess the older I get. The, the more I'm realizing, you know, the reality, because like, like you said, you know, when I'm young, you're just following the rules the four food groups, all this other stuff. And as you get older, you start to learn a little bit, just like with, with, uh, these government bailouts and subsidies, you know, mm. um, and just like, you know, becoming vegetarian and, and going, okay, great. I don't eat meat. I don't, I don't support that anymore, but you are by, if you're not vegan, then you are supporting that. So you, mm-hmm. it's not, it was, it was good enough for a minute. And then when you learn it's that is not good enough, then you have to make a decision, right? So then you get there and you go, okay, I'm 100 percent in vegan, and um, and then you and then you get excited because 
like I said, when I first got here to Arizona, I had three restaurants to eat at. Now there's 25, right? Yeah. And it's great. I'm happy. Just like you are happy I can go somewhere and find things. And it's not an inconvenience anymore. It's becoming more convenient. But when you t- take a look at the big picture, uh, there's a lot more to do. There's still, there's still a lot more to work on. So for you then, because like when people think of like vegetarianism or veganism or this, like they're like, oh, hippy dippy kind of love, blah, blah, blah. But actually, most of the vegans that I know, not that they're angry people, but it, it comes from like a, a, a space of being vegan versus plant-based for me is one, one, the vegans coming from a place of outrage about a system of suffering and pain and, and kind of this laxness of our moral approach to like a population of creatures on this planet. And for me, it comes from a place of, of anger, like where I'm, I'm horrified by the way that we treat uh, other living beings. And that's why I did it. So it comes from anger. Um, and it comes from a refusal to be a part of it. But if we turn to Rocco's sweet shop, mm-hmm. that come from a place of anger or a place of love starting it? <laughs> kind of from a place of necessity. I mean, I, I had to figure out, <laughs> I had to figure out what I want to do in my life. But again, I, I had to make sure that whatever I'm going to do, I'm not going to just go run out and go work for some corporate, you know, like go be a, credit officer somewhere of some corporation i wanted to do something that aligns with my values and that was that and i thought well i'm in arizona it's an underserved market what can i do to to i got to make a living but i got to make a living how can i turn this into an educational piece i can i can i can sell cookies they can be to the vegan market will, will embrace it they'll love it and then it could also move outside of that and just be a gourmet cookie to my neighbors they don't care as long as it's good mm-hmm. then i have an opportunity to educate, right? Once they learn that it's vegan, wow, wow, it tastes great. Well, guess what? It's vegan. And here's why. And here's why it's vegan. Yeah. So I thought this is a good space, right? Yeah. Um, and dude, so I don't know if it came. Even hearing you talk. What was that? Well, even just hearing you talk about it, and not that it needs to fall into one of those buckets, but like, you know, when I think about this kind of change, right? Like there's this like, the passion that you have about it seems to be coming from a place of anger. But like when you're talking about Rocco Sweet, because sweets, because people aren't going to see the video here, your whole demeanor changes and you get energized and you get like a big smile on your face. And it, it seems to me that there's like a transition from like feeling angry about something and taking that anger and moving into more of a positive direction. Does it have to be love? I, I don't know, but it, it does y- your whole demeanor changes when you talk about it. And it has this like more positive, like taking that anger and doing something with it that's meaningful and, and creates change. So this leads me to a question that we're, we're going to start getting a little sticky here. Um, as vegan companies continue to grow. So who knows, man, like, you know, like you believe in what you do and I believe in what you do. You might come to a time where you're in this, whereas companies continue to grow and they end up getting big enough where they go public or they get bought out. Yeah. From your perspective, companies that start as vegan companies, what kind of responsibility do they have to uphold their ethics as they get bigger? Uh, They absolutely have a responsibility. If that's if, if that's what they are presenting to the public, that we are a vegan company, we're an ethical vegan company, mm. that's great. You make, you can, you can still make millions and millions of dollars and still hold your ethics and, and hold yourself intact. You know, um, I think there's a couple, there's a couple of brands that have been around for a while, like follow your heart, right. And Tofurky, those are kind of good examples of companies that have been around 30, 40 years or more. And they still, have kept their ethics intact, I feel like, you know? Mm-hmm. So it is possible. And there's companies that, 
there are definitely people that are opportunists. They're going to see the vegan market. They're going to go, I'm a good, I'm a successful business person. I could come in here, develop something, build it up, sell it off. And there's no ethics involved at all. It's just a opportunity, really. Well, you know, Chris from uh, Sect and, you know, played in The Swarm and Left for Dead. Uh, he did uh, Magic Bacon Grease and does that. And he talked a lot on our podcast about stepping back in the business, keeping the business going, but like not following the progression of how big it was going. Cause he felt, you know, if I take another step, I'm not going to be able to do it how I want to do it, how sure. I believe is ethical. So what kind of responsibility do we have as like vegans who start a, a vegan company? Like, should we be held by our audience, by people who like buy from us? Should they call us out if we start stepping out or do they just go with the flow and be like, hell yeah, more options. I don't care. No. Like from a consumer point of view, should they be holding companies to the highest standard possible or they should, should they just go with the flow? Hold them to the highest standards possible. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't need to make billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to make a living and feel good about it and feel fulfilled. Right. I want to go to bed with a clear conscience and be proud when I wake up and, be, and do something I really love. Um, mm -hmm. that to me is success. It's not, oh, I got three, I made 3 million last week. Um, I know mm -hmm. that's probably not what a lot of people <laughs> go after, but that's what I do. So for me, um, I definitely would want to hold, uh, companies accountable. It's again, I'll, I'll relate it back to the, the whole straight edge scene. You know, like you, if you're going to come out and make a hard stance about being straight edge, you better be straight edge. Don't like four, four years from now go, well, eh, you know, I'm grown up now. So I, a, a beer once in a while is okay. We, we signed to, you know, we got signed to so-and-so label and, and, you know, it's sponsored by, you know, Budweiser or whatever. I, I don't, I don't like that. Sorry. Okay. This leads me to the, to the next question though. How do you feel about vegan companies? being bought up by non-vegan companies so if you think of something like dia being bought by companies that aren't from that same ethical space so you've got these big conglomerates they don't care about meat eaters they don't care about people who have dairy they don't care about this they don't care about that they care about market share and they want all the market share so how do you feel about about vegan companies being bought up by these non-vegan companies uh personally i don't like it um, if, I mean, I, I understand if, if that's going to get them to the next level and reach more people and that's what it's about for them. I understand that piece. Um, I, I, it's a risk. I feel like you, you could start to compromise your ethics at that point and you could start to, you know, is things going to change if all, you know, all of a sudden is this big giant corporation going to buy up a vegan company and go, well, let's do a branch that kind of includes eggs because we can make this a better product. And all of a sudden now they're doing that, that, yeah. you know? All right. So, and this is, it leads, it's kind of down the same path. Like there's a rising tide raise all boats. So, all right, you've got like beyond burgers. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, like someone's like uncle somewhere. It's like, Oh yeah, I tried beyond burgers. Not so bad. Okay. That's cool. Like great. People are reducing their, their intake. And they're thinking of like big names like Beyond Burger. Mm -hmm. So does, as things like that get bigger and bigger and these bigger companies that aren't vegan companies, they don't come from the community, as they start getting invested in this, does that overall help the small business owner who is a vegan company or does that choke them out? So does that rising tide raise all ships or does it somehow sink other ones? That's a good question. I don't know. I've, I've thought about, I'm thinking, it. I guess it does raise all boats if you're 
boat's in good shape, right? But if it's not, mm. it will eventually sink you. Um, I, I like to, I like to think that there, it is good. I like to think that you know, big companies coming in and taking over it, it, it overall will draw in people to become vegan, and that's the ultimate goal, right? Is to try to get that awareness. From a business perspective, I don't know if it's going to squash the small guys because um, I don't have an answer. All right. I w- but I love what you said about that. Hey, if your boat is in good shape, you should be able to go up. So what does it mean for you to be in good shape? Is that just like, oh, I have a good business plan? Or is there like something specific to that that you're thinking about? Well, I don't have a, I never wrote a business plan. You know, my plan was to not fail, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I just think as long as you, as long as you stay focused on what your intentions are and your ethics are intact, and I think um, you should be in good, you should, you should not be affected in a negative way by it. I don't, but I don't know for sure. So Rich, question for you then. If you had a message that you could give to vegans, so people who are vegans now, about how they spend their money in this space, what would your message be to them? Keep your money with the small businesses and the ethical vegan companies, not with the giant corporations. That's what I would say. Why is that? It's important. Um, It's important for the survival of the small businesses, number one, and those big giant corporations, ultimately they, they don't care about the animals. That's that's the reality. They just care about their bottom line, and they're they're doing it. That's their motives. So I I don't like to support that. Period. Okay. Um. So if you had an ability to speak to those people who are kind of you know let's say like plant based, you know, like and and are those people kind of dancing around vegetarian, vegan, any of that kind of stuff? If you were to talk to them about like why veganism, and I don't mean plant based, but veganism, mm-hmm. why is it important? Why is that important? It's it's considering the animal. It's being compassionate towards, and it's more than just the animal at this point. Like it's it's the environment and what the what animal agriculture does to the environment, the planet that we live on. It's it's kind of all connected. So if you come from that whole hippy dippy plant based thing, you, you gotta you gotta be concerned about a lot of things, the environment and where we're headed that way. But also, if you care at all, if you have a cat and a dog, or if you care about animals. And you can see what's happening. Like, it, it's got to be about the animals. I mean, that, that's that's where the vegan thing comes in. That's that's where the ethics come in. Okay. So you know, I know we focus a lot on the ethical concerns around having vegan businesses, but an interesting thing that I don't know if everybody knows is you actually still do a clothing line. You'd said that you had done one before with your brother, but now you you've been doing your own for a while. So why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So when I moved out to Arizona, I didn't have a band anymore and I didn't, and I didn't have a a creative outlet and I had just come off of, of running a merchandise company. So I thought, well, let me just, you know, this is a way to express myself is, is make t-shirts. And so I started uh, the underground faction, which at the time when I first started, actually wasn't really geared towards um, animal rights. It kind of evolved into that. I was just kind of making things that I enjoyed. And what stuck was it got embraced by the the vegan community that was happening out here at the time, and and it made sense. And the, even the name, the underground faction. It's I come from underground music and an underground lifestyle, so the underground faction 
just made sense. And so it became this animal rights company. And I do that. It's always kind of been on the side. Um, it's just something to fulfill my, my creative outlet. But it's also when I do events, these vegan festivals and stuff, now I can feed you and I can clothe you. You know, and the activists love it. They have something to wear. And uh, so, yeah, so I do that as well. Yeah. And, you know, just to speak to that, I have uh, underground faction, animal liberation, human liberation T-shirt that I have had since, I don't know, like a long time. Um, and I'm super psyched on it. So a great company to support. Where can people find you online with that? That's 100% online at the underground faction. I mean, again, because we're shut down with, with all the events and stuff, that's pretty much the only spot to get it. You can go on Amazon, too, and find it probably. But mm -hmm. go directly to me at theundergroundfaction.com and, and you can find stuff there. All right. Everybody check that out. And of course, being like a hardcore kid, I love a good t-shirt. So definitely recommended. Cool. Um, so as we're wrapping up, I got three more questions for you. But before I do that, any questions or comments for me? Anything you want to put out there at all? Not off the top of my head. All right. So question number one. What's the future of uh, Rocco Sweet Shop? Continue to grow and get better, um, build the brand, but, but more importantly, reaching more people, um, expanding our online presence and, and get more into shipping across the country. And ideally, I'd like to get into a retail space at some point to allow for walk-in sales. And that would allow us to expand the menu a bit into some more fun stuff, you know. But, uh, you know, I'm planning on doing this the rest of my life and then handing it over to my son. That's my end goal. You know, not to build it up and cash out. It's more about legacy for me. Okay. Two. Top three Southern California punk or hardcore records could be anything. It doesn't have to be hardcore. It could be punk. It could be pop punk. It could be literally anything. Top three. Well, the, 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 the record that kind of, I just posted this on my Instagram, the record that always comes to my mind is Bad Religion, How Could Hell Be Any Worse? Mm -hmm. It was one of the first records I heard as a kid. Um, and it, it just struck me. and. As I became a musician, as I became a recording artist, as I met the band, the whole the whole transition, I, I love that record. I love the sounds of it. I love the songs. I love the lyrics. I love the message. I love everything about that record. It's it is flawless to me. So so that's okay. for number one for sure. Um, Southern California hardcore punk. You know, I gotta say, you know, from Choice Screen for Change. Because that made such an impact uh, in my formative years and, and becoming a musician. I got to witness them from the very beginning when they had a demo out and what they, what kind of impact they made. I swear to God, people that were not in Orange County or Southern California in 1984, you don't know, period. You can pick up that record and think it's an amazing record. You don't get the half of it, how incredible it was to witness that live that before that record was released that what was happening if you didn't see one of those live shows i'm sorry for you that's it you got that record and that, that's as good you know it, it was an amazing moment that, that summer of 84 into 85 psh, wonderful and that record is as best you're going to get to capture to capture it that's it number three i don't want to make a mistake you know what i mean i gotta hmm. The Circle Jerks group sex is, 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 is what comes to my mind. Another record that was just frantic and out of control. And just, it was just, uh, it just kind of captured that Southern California sound when I got into punk, the punk movement. And, and it just, it still speaks to me. 
I wish you could have seen Patrick as soon as you said that. He, Patrick's a drummer, like an incredible drummer, and he started playing air drums as soon as you said that. Huh. Uh, Patrick plays in a band called Chain Whip okay. uh, that you got to check out. They're really, really, really good. Okay. All right, man. Last question for you. And you, know, you might want to take a time or some time to think about this, or it might just pop right into your head. Go for it. Of all of the many cherished memories that you have about it instead, is there one that stands out to you that you can say like, yeah, this is like one of my favorite memories of that band? in that time of my life? Man, that's a tough question because there were so many amazing memories and it really shaped who I, who I am today. Um, the guys, you know, Steve Larson, the drummer's one of my best friends, you know, to this day we're, we're recording in a couple of weeks, you know? Um, but looking back, um, hmm, that last show was special. Uh, I remember coming back from the first tour and playing the first time in Orange County it was very special because the numbers just went way up and we were embraced by the whole scene. Um, that was amazing. Um, just like selling out a place like the Country Club, which is a big venue, which which was uh, something to be proud of, um, was huge. Uh, yeah, those are some of the memories. I, I love the tours. I love touring with bands meeting new bands that are on the road with us and becoming friends, playing multiple shows across the country. We'd have firework wars with Gorilla Biscuits and, you know, just, just doing fun stuff, you know? A great time. Great time in my life. All right. Well, listen, man, thank you so much for your time. Uh, everybody, please support uh, Rocco's Sweet Shop. So it's not, you know, you can't go in and buy stuff, which I found out today, and it's good that I didn't drop by last time I was there. Um, but, Rich, where can people pick up uh, Rocco's Sweets? Yeah. One thing I want to point out too, through, through the whole quarantine COVID lockdown thing is we had to really, uh, pivot, you know, cause we've serviced a lot of restaurants and those all shut down. So we were, uh, mm-hmm. and we, and the, the majority was that, and the, the rest of it was on events. Well, these events went away. So we had to basically go online and say, look, we will deliver by the dozen anywhere in the Valley and we'll do contactless delivery. If that's how safe you want to feel. And so I was selling a dozen cupcakes in the neighborhood and, and this and that, whatever. So we've learned that the online part needs to be focused on a little bit more. So we do, we have been shipping. I've shipped up, up to Portland and now to Indiana and over to things. So we, we do ship cookies, uh, anywhere you buy by the dozen. And then, um, if you're, you know, if you're in town, I would, the best way to just send us a message because you never know what's happening. Like if, if I've got stuff extra stuff around you can come by or or we can deliver it to you like i say yeah by the dozen because that's the best way to, to handle it but we'll tailor it to whatever you know it, there's also a couple of coffee shops that are local that carry our stuff um and a couple of little vegan marketplaces that that carry our stuff as well so I, I, you can find it or just reach out to me and i'll i'll get you what you need oh yeah and for anyone wondering rich is a, a totally like may will make good on that he's a very accessible guy um, so everyone, please support, uh, Rocco Sweet Shop. It is totally awesome. It's ethically ran, uh, by a guy that has been about what he's about from the mid eighties and on. So Rich, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the music. Thank you so much for uh, all you've done for the vegetarian and vegan scene. And thank you so much for being another ethical company in a time where it seems like we're slipping into chaos, we got to make sure that there are lights in the dark. So thanks so much, man. And everyone, we will see you in the outro. Dave? 
Drop the beat. That was an awesome conversation. So thank you so much, Rich, for joining us. And I just encourage people here, like, yeah, it's cool. We're in a time of change. There is so many more options out there. And, you know, take full advantage of them. I think it's fantastic. While also watching where your money goes. You know, I'll never forget what Chris from uh, Sect said on uh, one of our earlier episodes, Chris Callahan. You know, the idea that companies that are buying up these vegan companies, they don't care about people being vegan. They don't care about reducing animal suffering. What they care about is having all of the market. They don't want some of the money. They want all of the money. And they figured out how to do that. Is that bad? Not necessarily. But if you've got an issue with an organization or if you've got an issue with something that you think is really wrong from like a a capitalistic point of view, be aware that you might be feeding one monster, but through many mouths. So be smart with your money. Figure out how you want to spend it. So once again, thanks so much for Rich uh, coming on here. It's always a pleasure to be able to talk about hardcore in these things. And especially if we can mention uniform choice, which was totally sick. I could have done a whole episode on that. Anyways, uh, everybody keep your eyes open, keep thinking, keep talking. Let's make sure that we are always making decisions based with both an open heart and an open mind. And we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond.